Today's special episode is an interview with Dutch historian Joe Tewes, better known as the Fake History Hunter, for her work online debunking numerous popular fake history posts. For over a decade, Joe has specialized in daily life of early 20th century Europeans. She has worked as a historical consultant for museums, documentaries, films, television, and authors. Today, we are going to talk about French historical myths, why real history is important, and how we can protect real history from fake history. Please enjoy. Thank you very much for joining me, Joe Tewisha, and for helping me pronounce your name correctly because my Frenchness made me completely mess that up. For those who don't know, she is the the face behind the fake history hunter. And do you want to tell us a little bit about your page? Because it's honestly one of the most entertaining pages, I think, on Twitter and on the internet in general. Thank you. Um, well, what I do is I just go around Twitter looking for people um, sharing things that I find suspicious, and then I try and find out if it is true or not. And if it's fake, then I write an article about it, or um, and, or I just start correcting them. And then I bother and harass everyone who shares the same fake history story. See, on the one hand, I think when the way you describe it, it sounds like a dream for all of us historians. But the more I look at it, the more I think I just could not do your job because some of the stories that you have to deal with are just so bizarre and the people are so unrepentant. I I saw a little while back there was a a pretty huge wave on Twitter of people saying that uh, Ludwig von Beethoven was mm-hmm. actually black. Yeah. Yeah, it is It is quite strange. I mean, the story itself is quite old. It's been shared for, I think, literally for decades. And, oh, really? Yeah, and most of it's based on um, our ancestors using the words black or swarty or schwarz or all sorts of definitions completely um, in, in a completely confusing way for us modern people, when we hear someone say that man is black, we think, oh, his skin must be black. But our ancestors, they used those terms very loosely for all sorts of people in very different circumstances. So someone reads somewhere that they describe Beethoven as being a bit dark and they take this out of context and run with it. And of course, during the you know the current situation in the world where this is such a hot topic, um, people are apparently desperately looking for um, for history that uh, around that subject that they like that they find interesting that supports them that they want to share, and sometimes that goes wrong. Yeah, it's kind of like because I'm a, a, f- a huge literary fan, you know, not to plug myself shamelessly, but I just released a, a new fiction book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I in reading fiction, you hear a lot of descriptions of having a dark complexion or that sort of thing. But then the person that they're describing is, you know, pasty white. It must be pretty hard to deal with, especially nowadays that so much stuff is political because i think obviously you and i are anti-racist we appreciate Mm -hmm. 
we appreciate history and what every single race and people has given to history. But so often when you point out that, hey, you know, Ludwig von Beethoven wasn't black and, yeah. you know, Cleo Cleopatra, uh, something like seven of her eight like uh, ancestors were Greek as opposed to Egyptian, but then there's a lot of people who say, oh, Cleopatra was black, you know, so it's... It's it's silly, but also a bit sad because there are so many uh, black heroes and uh, heroines and stories that are absolutely fantastic and amazing. And I sometimes try and steer these people to those stories and to, you know, people who are specialized in African history, for instance, and sub-Saharan cultures, because there is so much, there is no need to go along with fake stories and uh, imaginary stories and things that make no sense. Uh, but it, yeah, it is it is quite tricky and touchy. It's very difficult. And um, I think that it's very difficult for a proper historian, for someone who is open-minded and willing to learn about all cultures and all histories to be racist, because you, you can't deny that generally across the centuries, people are more alike then they are different and we owe so much to pretty much every culture on earth. It's, it's a global thing, humanity. So it, it is quite tricky and uh, that's why I keep trying to simply keep it apolitical and just go, this is my evidence. Uh, you don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But look, here's a picture. Here's a story. Here's some evidence. And do with it what you want. You know, the famous parable of you can, you know, you can bring a horse to water but you can't make a drink. I, I just try and share whatever I've got, and um, and if I need be, I'll ask them for their evidence, which is often where the discussion ends. And that's where it gets the funniest, in my opinion. But thank you very much for being the light in Plato's cave, so to say. So <laughs> in, in any case, I invited you on to talk about historical myths, specifically those related to France. And in talking to you earlier, it seems like you are much more of an expert on medieval myths, and I'm more of the expert on modern myths. I thought being historians, we should start chronologically Mm -hmm. So you have a very helpful, uh, is it a bingo card on your website yeah. of myths, uh, medieval myths. And some of these are just absolutely fantastic. Everyone has bad teeth. Nobody gets old, always war. Um, some of these, I think a lot of people can pretty much understand, but other ones I think are, would actually surprise people. Can you, so I'm going to pick out one myth. Can you tell us about this myth only the clergy could read? Ah, yeah, that's a very a very interesting one and a bit complicated, to be fair. Um, for a very long time, everyone, and that's not, you know, that's, that's that, that includes historians and medievalists and people in general, not just Hollywood, have assumed that in Europe, uh, very few people could read, that the literacy percentage, the illiteracy percentage was about 99%. And um, the more you start looking into that, and I, I have to admit that that part of my bingo card is not that well developed yet. I haven't finished a proper article on it. Um, but we know that it wasn't just the clergy who read. It was um, when people look at literacy in the medieval times, they often check out what have we got left. And that is often um, the beautiful medieval books written by the clergy in Latin, and uh, for a long time, that's what we base our idea of literacy in medieval Europe on. What have we got? Latin books, ergo facto, um, it was only the clergy who could read and write. 
Um, but if you start looking into the archives and the records, you start finding little traces of people leaving their mark. And they often do it in their regional languages. So, you know, a sort of basic um, English, German, French sort of thing. Um, and you, you get the feeling that people didn't really take that seriously. And that includes historians uh, up to a few decades ago. Um, and... So we are pretty sure that more people could write and read and write than was long thought, but it's very difficult to prove that because the common people uh, wrote on bark and on wax, which are two materials that don't last very long. Um, and besides that, all they did was sign a few official documents now and then. Um, and uh, in the 1950s, they found a whole bunch of bark letters in Russia and that they were somehow magically preserved, well, not magically, scientifically preserved, because uh, the earth there is a, a certain condition, it's a little bit extra. I don't know. I don't I, I do not do science very well. But those bark letters uh, and documents uh, were saved for uh, hundreds of years. And then suddenly uh, historians found these piles of letters about very common things, love letters, uh, a child's homework, um, a, a shopping list, um, written clearly by common people in a regional language, uh, which sort of suggests that perhaps that was going on in other places in Europe as well. Um, so it's it, you know it's a difficult subject because it's difficult to find actual evidence of people writing, but there are so many you know circumstantial bits of evidence that are suggesting that. There were more people reading and writing everything, and 99% is probably over-exaggerated. So not to jump ahead a bit, but it seems like a lot of these myths have to deal with the very concept of the Dark Ages, which has been a particular thing that you have fought against. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Dark Ages? Oh, uh, God, where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> um during the Middle Ages, uh, a few Roman, a few Italians wanted to make the Roman era sound better. So they were for, for for political reasons, and they started to say, "Oh, you know, everything was better when we were in charge." In the familiar old story, and that's when the concept and the idea of the Dark Ages, you know, everything was darker then, uh, was born. And this term it stuck. People kept using it, and after. For a long time, they also used the term to describe the era because there were fewer written records. And this whole idea began to grow that after the Roman Empire uh, sort of collapsed, uh, like one afternoon, suddenly the entire uh, Western Europe region co completely fell apart and they forgot how to bath and write and read and make roads and everything fell apart and they started living in holes in the ground and you know eating grass or whatever and a lot more recently people have started to look at it uh, well a, a bit more nuanced and a bit more fact-based and they started to realize that those dark ages that the term is pretty much a misnomer and most historians have stopped using it it's you know the middle ages they weren't as bad as people seem to think and that's one of the reasons I wrote this bingo card because there are so many misconceptions and they're Almost all of them are based on the idea that uh, medieval people were somehow backwards and stupid and dirty. While in reality, um, you know, Europe just continued. There was a little, there was, of course, a few things changed. Uh, there was a lot of, a uh, lot less export of certain products, 
because that's what the Romans were really good at, you know, spreading goods from one place of the empire to the other. Um, but much of Europe had never even been occupied by the Romans and life just continued for them. And, um, you know, the empire also didn't collapse one afternoon. It, it took years, decades, even centuries for the Roman Empire to change and, you know, get smaller and eventually become the Byzantine area. So, uh, empire. So, it's a really strange idea that these these couple of centuries somehow Europe completely fell apart and became one huge chaotic mess. Um, of course, it wasn't a paradise, and of course there were lots of terrible things. And yes, when a empire lo- leaves, there are smaller groups trying to get power, so there were wars and combat and things like that. But the whole idea of calling um, part of the Middle Ages or some people even call all of the Middle Ages the Dark Ages. That's just, you know, it's wrong. It makes no sense. Um, and I keep trying to tell people that, and it's not easy. <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad you do that work. So there are two squares on your medieval bingo that I think are pretty related and pretty interesting. One is the idea that people were ignorant, and then the other one is earth is flat. And of course, that's a a pretty striking thing that medieval people back then did not believe that the earth was flat, especially given nowadays there are people like Shaquille O'Neal and others who claim that it is. Do you want to explain that whole myth? Well, the ignorance goes back a little bit again to the literacy idea. Um, We know that there were schools, quite a lot of them, um, dating back pretty much to the beginning of the Middle Ages. Some of them were uh, continued institutions that were set up by the Romans that just continued, you know, that they, they didn't stop suddenly teaching people. You know, there was education in Europe, and of course it's nothing compared to what it was later, but that doesn't mean there wasn't any. That was everybody was stupid or, or dumb. Um, you know, if there had been no progress whatsoever, there wouldn't have been any renaissances at all. And... You know, people often think there was only one Renaissance, the big one, uh, but there were several. And even just telling people that there were several Renaissances during the Middle Ages um, that showed an, 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 an increase in science and intellect and all sorts of subjects, um, that for me... And a very important one in France, I have to mention, mm-hmm. the Carolingian Renaissance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that alone should teach you that, um, you know, it wasn't some sort of backwards, um, stagnant region and time. Yeah, it really is uh, interesting. And do you want to get into the earth is flat? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is no real evidence that shows that uh, this was believed by a lot of people. I think, I think I personally have only found one example of someone saying, ha ha, that guy is stupid. He thinks the earth is flat, which is quite funny. (laughs) Uh, But but there is no other example. I couldn't find any examples uh, of people actually saying the earth is flat. And there is no evidence of it being generally believed by a lot of people. While we do have evidence of saying the earth is round and you know, making calculations about it. And not just medieval people, but also, of course, the Greeks and other cultures have been doing that. The idea that loads of people think the earth is actually flat uh, is, seems to be pretty recent, as far as we can prove, of course. Nobody, nobody, nobody knows if um, the average medieval common peasant uh, what they thought about it because that's not something that people 
um, Ost. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm terrible with my ancient Greek names, but who was was it? Euclidius or Euclidean who who ca- calculated the size of the Earth and got it within 200 miles? Or am I getting that completely wrong? I'm just throwing out Greek names now because I'm not an expert in that. Um, I think yeah, Copernicus. Is that what you said? Not Copernicus, but there was an ancient Greek thinker who was working in Egypt. Oh right, yeah. No, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know who if, what his name exactly was, but I know who you mean. But you know, I'm old. <laughs> yeah, the brain the ancient Greeks. Yeah, old, some old guy. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, the ancient Greeks figured everything out. You know, you know what it is. In any case, is there a particular favorite myth that you have uh, that you have covered either in the medieval period or just in general? And bonus points if you can relate it to France. (laughs) Well, everybody knows the French are dirty. Uh, Well, of course. (laughs) that's, That's one of my favorites. The idea that medieval people didn't wash, didn't bathe, didn't clean their streets, didn't care about wanting to be clean or, or, you know, didn't care about being smelly, which the first time I heard it, even as a child, I thought, that's weird. That's peculiar. Why would people do that? And it doesn't take a lot of logic to to realize that that doesn't really fit with reality because no matter where you are or where you live in the world, if you have hands and you want to eat food, you do not want sand on your food. And if there is sand on your hands, there will be sand on your food. If you have dirt or grease on your hands, you do not want it on your clothes, especially if washing them is not, uh, you know, something you do easily. That's not a job for a machine, but it's going to take you hours to clean a dress or a shirt or whatever. Um, You know, even if you have slaves, that's just, you know, why would you bother with that sort of thing? The idea that you don't want sand or grease on your stuff and on your food, that's, I think that goes back to pre, you know, ancient times, to prehistoric times. And we know that people have been making soap and bathing, um, well, since since the Romans, since before the Romans even arrived in Western Europe. But it is this image that, of course, it's very appealing. We like it. We like seeing it for some sort of reason. We like the Middle Ages to be dirty. Uh, we see it in movies, in Hollywood, in computer games. Um, maybe it has something to do with feeling better about ourselves. You know, look, we, this is where we came from. Look how great we are today. I don't know why. Um, but everything we know and everything, all the sources we have seem, you know, seem to prove, uh, seem to suggest that it was completely different, that people actually did wash quite often, several times a day, that soap, there was a huge soap industry in in, 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 uh, in Europe at the time. Um, there are household books, there are, uh, there's art, there's so much there that suggests that people really actually quite cared we have uh, city records that write about people trying to experiment with uh, plumbing and getting into trouble when it doesn't work. We have uh, police, well, sort of police re- law records that suggest that someone uh, littering in the street nearly got stabbed over it because you know someone had to pay a fine because there was dirt on on the street. And it's there is so much there that suggests that people actually cared and really hard try to keep things clean. Of course, it didn't always work. Of course, there had to be laws because in some places, in some neighborhoods, just like today, um, things didn't quite work. Things got out of hand. But generally, we can say that things 
uh, in medieval Europe weren't dirty and disgusting till the, uh, ironically, till the Renaissance, <laughs> when oh, really? the cities, yeah, because that's when the cities started to become overpopulated, when they lost their uh, agricultural character, when, you know, there's this famous story of people uh, emptying their bedpans uh, out of the window. I think there's a French uh, word for it, a French saying, garde-le, garde-le, something like that, for watch out for the water. Right. Um, but that's, that too seems to be more of a, a Renaissance thing, a post-medieval thing, because for most of medieval uh, time, houses barely ever had, a, had a, even had top floors with windows to to empty your stuff from, to throw your stuff from. Uh, people had, houses had yards um, with you know with places where they could dump their rubbish. There was no need to throw it out of a window. I don't care what air it is. If you're walking around the street in your best clothes and some, someone empties a backpan on your head, um, you're going to kick in their door and stab them to bits. I mean, that's what I would do. So why would people have been doing that until cities became so overpopulated that the public uh, sanitary just went downhill and public toilets didn't quite work anymore because they were, become, they were used too, too often too much. Uh, people started building houses in the places where their yards used to be, which meant there was no more space to dump their waste. That That's when things really got out of hand. And when people are, in many cases, when people are talking about negative medieval things, they're talking about things that happened after the Middle Ages. So it's quite weird, and but also a bit ironic and a bit funny that uh, the so-called golden age that followed the Middle Ages is actually the one where many of these stories come from. And yeah, not to, I suppose, get too much into that, but a lot of crazy things happened in, during the Renaissance Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, such as more witch burning. And uh, yeah. yeah, but... And it's also, it's also when uh, the average life expectancy went down, it went... It went down in, during the Renaissance, which is also fascinating stuff because everyone always says, oh, everybody died when there were 30 during the Middle Ages. Uh, and, you know, the Renaissance, they were, oh, so lovely and beautiful. And everyone was, you know, skipping through the streets with flowers in their hair and being happy and glorious. And But it's it's almost the other way around. I mean, the, the Renaissance was a golden age for art and architecture and science and many of those things. But for the average common person... Um, life generally got worse. Yeah, that really is a fascinating point. And I think in the myths that we've talked about, I really want to get at why these myths are created and perpetuated. So you've talked about how, on the one hand, some of these myths are created by the enemies of certain regimes or people who have a vested interest. But what other reasons can you think of, such as, for example, maybe misconceptions or errors in the texts or retelling? You know, how do these myths get started? Well, that's that's a very difficult question to answer because it really depends on the myths. There are so many ways that, uh, these myths appear, and sometimes they really appear out of nowhere. Um, there's a very famous story about Queen Elizabeth I of England um, never bathing, like once a year. And that she ha there's even a quote attributed to her that says, uh, I bathe once a year whether I need it or not. And this is such a famous quote, such a famous story, that it's being taught in schools as actual history. It is, uh, I, I, you know, I had to had to contact a British educational uh, official website on history uh, to make them remove that quote because it was on there. 
And there is no evidence whatsoever for this quote actually existing up until the 1920s. There's nothing. There's no rumor. There's no suggestion of it. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it appears to have been a, a story that may have been a vague combination of stories about Queen Victoria, her bathing ideas, which, by the way, are also wrong, um, and con confusing her with another queen, Queen Elizabeth. And it, it is really strange that how many stories there are about royals not bathing very much. I have, I have no idea where it came from. Um, people say an ambassador wrote about it in a report, but then when you ask, where is it? Where's the report? Most of these were actually, um, you know, kept. They are still, some of them are even online researchable. There's no evidence of that in any of the letters. Um, there is one story that may have been at the, the root of it, and that is when Queen Elizabeth was um, in her winter years, when she was uh, very old and nearly dying, um, she wanted to be uh, left alone a lot. She didn't want to be bathed. Because for her, of course, when she was being bathed, that would involve uh, lots of servants helping her. And she didn't want that when she was old and she had trouble walking and she had, uh, well, you know, you know what happens when you get old. You don't, you, you don't really want a lot of people bathing you, I assume. So in her last years of her life, she didn't want help being bathed. So maybe that's where it came from. Um, she was very vain. She, well, perhaps that's a, not a very nice word to use. Uh, she cared a lot about her appearance. She used a lot of makeup, which had a very bad effect on her skin. Um, you know, she was not a happy woman at the end of her life. So that all, to me, that all makes perfect sense that you don't want to be bathed and, or, or, you know, spend as much time bathing, whatever it was. So maybe that's where it's from, but I can't prove it. And even when we would have this quote of her actually written black and white uh, on a uh, document that she signed, you know, I said this, even then you have to look at it. What did they mean by bathing? Does she mean washing herself? Does she mean being washed? Does she mean going in a full tub? Does she mean being bathed by a lot of servants? If she says, I don't bathe, does it mean she never washed? You know, it's, it's, it is such a complicated story to prove but as long as there's no actual evidence, it's probably just a myth. But you can understand that this is a story that had it been around for a long time, it would be something that her enemy would have loved to have used. It is the type of story that downgrades a person. But when this person <clears throat> is a symbol for a country, it's even better. You know, that's why there are so many strange stories about leaders of countries, royals, uh, well, Napoleon, as you, of course, know, they've, they've told really strange stories about him. At a time of war, and it happens today, you know, literally every day these days, uh, there are stories about world leaders, uh, politicians and things like that. Some of them are true, some of them are not true, uh, some of them are propaganda, some of them are just meant to make fun of someone, uh, there are rumours and gossip, and I'm pretty sure that much of what we see passing by on social media today that we laugh at because we know it's ridiculous, um, in 100 years or 200 years, if, you know, humans still are around, <laughs> um, there's going to be someone on Twitter uh, going to say, well, that's actually a fake history. 
Twitter 3.0. Yeah, perhaps 3D virtual reality Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's a scary thought. I mean, Twitter's bad enough. But it's funny you mentioned that and how some myths are purposely created by enemies. It makes me think of the myth of uh, Prima Nocta, mm-hmm. which for those people who don't know, Prima Nocta, which literally is Latin for first night, it's this idea that if uh, someone just got married, that the king has the right to deflower the wife. I assume the wife. I don't think they'd go for the husband, but you know who knows. You never but, know. in, but in any case, uh, apparently this myth has been widespread, and virtually every king in Europe was accused of it, even though there's no evidence for it taking place anywhere. No, there's. I think there's one case in Scotland that sort of vaguely may have had something remotely related to it, but it's very vague. Uh, but yeah, generally there is no real proper believable evidence that says that that, that makes us uh, believe that it really happened, let alone that it was a common occurrence. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there were uh, leaders and pe- people with power uh, who ruled lands and villages and towns who absolutely abused their power uh, to have their wicked way with loads of people. Um, but that it being a some sort of official custom, uh, a law or whatever, it's ridiculous. Yeah, of course, now people believe it, I think, because it was featured in the movie Braveheart, yeah. which that's another big source of historical Thanks, myths. Thanks, Gibson, yeah. I know, right? You it's know, not even but, filmed in Scotland. <laughs> yeah. The one thing that Mel Gibson did wrong in his life. But uh, in any way. <laughs> so uh, moving on, perhaps we can move on to more modern myths. And in thinking about how myths are created, one thing that I thought was interesting is how some people within their own societies create myths in order to change society, that sometimes Mm -hmm. these don't come from enemies. And I'm purposely thinking of someone like Voltaire and other Enlightenment thinkers in France because they helped perpetuate this myth that France was horrendously behind Britain during the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, and then during the early industrial revolution, Mm -hmm. because they wanted to bring about political change. And politically, they had some sort of argument in that France was uh, a monarchy, whereas Britain was a constitutional monarchy. But in terms of actual scientific output and economic output france was definitely on par with britain yeah yes absolutely in often those cases there is a political reason uh, for both positive and negative fake history i mean claiming something um, is either really really good in your own country or really really bad in your own country um, generally has an effect. It will make the people, it's good for morale. It will make people feel better about your country um, or it will perhaps, um, you know, make them angry about things and want to change things. Or if you play your card right, um, your card right, it makes them want to change things themselves. For instance, if you say we have the worst, um, 
I don't know, our education is really bad, you're going to have a, a whole bunch of people saying, oh, maybe I should be a teacher. I want to change this because I think it's important. It can uh, it can, it can, be a good thing, it seems, as, as, as awful as it sounds. <laughs> Fake history can be used for good and, and evil. Yeah, although I, I do feel a, a bit bad for French scientists. So just because it, what was funny is that in the case of the scientific revolution, Obviously, I think Britain was definitely a leader in the mechanical arts. They were uh, very good at physics and that sort of thing. But if you think about the great chemists and the great biologists, a lot of them were French. I mean, look at uh, Louis Pasteur, who came up with germ theory. And even before Louis Pasteur, there were so many French thinkers. Um, later on, there was uh, two Frenchmen who invent or who came up with uh, quinine, which allowed Europeans to not get uh, yellow fever. And so that essentially allowed Europe to colonize Africa and South America, which not a good thing, but essentially this incredible... Oh, yeah. it, it was for them. <laughs> for them, but uh, this incredible discovery was by Frenchmen. So French people really didn't, they weren't behind Britain, at least not in general, but that didn't stop mm -hmm. a lot of thinkers from saying so. Oh, it's, yeah, it's probably also the French Revolution that did a lot of damage when it comes to reputation. You know, uh, there's there is there was a while when the French were appeared to be a bit distracted, <laughs> to put it mildly, and of course when people are busy with um, with revolutions, especially in propaganda abroad in England, um, the people involved with the revolution were often uh, depicted as half savages. Since you've gotten on to the French Revolution, let's talk about some myths there because there are some pretty fantastic myths, and I think. Everyone's favorite myth was that Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake when she heard that the French peasantry were starving because they didn't have enough bread. Yeah. Again, that is that appears to be based on a on one guy writing a book that says a certain princess. Well, Marie Antoinette at the time, I think she was seven or eight, uh, said that. Uh, brioche it was, by the way, not not cake really, which is a sort of a cake, but you know, doesn't matter. Um, yeah. But you know that is, that appears to be the only source there is for this story. And the guy himself didn't name a princess, didn't say who it was, and everyone just assumed it was uh, it was her. And this story came back to haunt her, um, not just during the French Revolution, but to this day. Uh, and you know, and even if she said it, she was seven. Right. <laughs> if, if if she some, said it, yeah. If someone had written down the stuff I said when I was seven, <laughs> I'd be in so much trouble today. Yeah. So oh, it's a, it's such a weird thing to say. And there are there are some historians who say it was probably not even her. It was you know a story about someone completely different. It's there's a lot to unwrap in that story. Uh, but we can you know it, it it wasn't something she said at a later age. We, we can be sure about that. Yeah, it really is amazing. And I just the other day I saw this myth being perpetuated again. Not to not to get into American politics, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know if you've heard, but we're kind of going through a spell right now. Yeah, it's it's, it's a bit of a mess, uh, fakely. I heard something about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people are unemployed and uh Ivanka Trump told people that now's a great time to develop other skills. And so some people have criticized her as being 
America's Marie Antoinette. And I mm-hmm. just want to say, oh, you know, Marie Antoinette never said anything that ignorant, but you know, to my knowledge. <laughs> you should. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it is a beautiful uh, example of people using uh, semi-fake history, because we can't be 100% sure that it's fake, but, um, you know, to make her appear awful you know while there's plenty of other stories to make her appear awful you know we don't need the fake history to make uh, you know to show that she did a few things that really were you know not very nice um but you know this story again it's the same as with queen victoria it's you know queen elizabeth things like that it's a story that somehow appeals to the imagination people like it uh, and, you know, if you say, oh, she also had a little farm where she used to pretend she was a common farmer, a dairy maid, and, you know, she spent more money on pretending to be a farmer than most people made in their entire lives. You know, that would make me angry. That's really yeah. pretty disgusting. But, um, you know, if someone says, yeah, she said, let the poor eat, eat cake, somehow people feel that in their guts. You know, that's a story that's a real punch that really hurts. <laughs> so it's it's understandable that people used it, um, regardless where they got it from. Maybe from that one book. Maybe it's just it was just a rumor at the time. We may never know. But it's a it's yeah you know, it's a very good example of using uh, a rumor, a fake history story, um, to make something happen. And that's also why fake history is so important and can be quite dangerous. Politicians can get their hands on it. Absolutely. And, you know, aside from just Ivanka, I mean, so many people throughout history have been compared to Marie Antoinette because supposedly she said that, but she never did. Mm -hmm. But going on to other French revolutionary myths, I think one of my favorite misconceptions that people have is that France's revolutions have been led by the poor. And I think this one in particular has been a huge myth thanks to the play and movies uh, Les Miserables, yep. when mm-hmm. that's just not been the case. No. no. Of course, it was it was them who did the fighting and the protesting and going onto the streets. Uh, you know, they were in the vanguard. They, they did a lot of the dirty work, but they weren't the leaders. They, they, you know, as, as, as usually, sadly, is the case. It's, you know, the masses, 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 masses. <laughs> that get, Either, yeah. Masses, yeah, yes. The masses. If we want to be fully American. <laughs> it's the masses. <laughs> the masses. <laughs> that, you know, that get used by uh, those above them. Yeah, definitely. And, of course, virtually everyone that became part of the National Assembly, at least during the um, uh, original French Revolution, was a lawyer. And then... In 1830, during the July Revolution, essentially the July Revolution got kicked off because the government was cracking down on the middle class being allowed into the government. Um, The July ordinances uh, would exclude the middle class from government and censor the press, which kicked off the whole revolution. So the idea that it was a bunch of singing peasants that overthrew the monarchy was (laughs) not accurate at all. Uh, I I, I bet they sang a few songs now and then. (laughs) Maybe a few. You know, French, French people are pretty delightful. So, So I think the other, perhaps the other super famous 
French myth is the idea that Napoleon was short. And this, of course, has now become part of modern culture with the idea of the Napoleon complex. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Well, you know, I know, I, I'm Dutch, so I'm six foot tall. So to me, he was short. Well, to me, pretty much everybody is short. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, if uh, there's a reason the Netherlands floods, you're going to be okay. Yeah, we're fine. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, so Napoleon, just for those who don't know the facts, Napoleon's height was recorded at five feet, two inches, but this was in French feet, which is different from the English measurements, which is five foot seven, which was average at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing was that he was nicknamed the little corporal, but this was just a term of endearment, kind of like how the emperor Caligula, which means little boots. That's just because when he was a kid, you know, he would walk around with the army. It wasn't because he was short. And then, of course, Napoleon, he chose his imperial guard based on height in order to make them imposing. And so he looked short compared to them. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the... uh, The British had a very, very famous publication called Punch, uh, which made a lot of cartoons, and it always depicted Napoleon as being far, far shorter than Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, who was five foot nine, which is not a big difference, but they would always contrast the two and exaggerate his height versus Napoleon's. Absolutely. It is a a famous political cartoon, uh, you know, technique trick they do it a lot we see um you know i've seen it done with uh hitler for instance where you see hitler uh, jumping up and down having a tantrum being really really angry while you know uh, churchill and and uh, roosevelt are just looking on just going why is that being much taller taking someone down a peg make you know sometimes literally by making the shorter um, that's really satisfying in a cartoon, in a picture, and it's it's it makes people feel really good to think that someone they well technically fear because you know Napoleon was quite an impressive uh, ruler and emperor, uh, someone they fear or they they don't like who's the enemy to make them you know to to have something wrong with them to make them appear smaller, a bit stupid, a bit smelly. It, it just makes people feel a bit better. 
Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that's uh, what the British had to rely on was propaganda, mm -hmm. because at least for a long time, Napoleon beat, what was it, like five or six coalitions. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, up until he decided to take on the Russian winter, that uh, yeah. didn't go so well. And it, you know, it's perfectly fine for people of the era to believe all that propaganda and, you know, to have those stories and to spread them around if it makes them feel better. But, you know, it, it's been a few centuries. If you want, you know, we should move on. <laughs> we should be able to look at Napoleon and say, okay, well, you know, we don't like this about him. We don't like that about him. But he wasn't particularly short. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, now people have a, a lot more to criticize him for because for those people who aren't necessarily too familiar with France, Napoleon, even to this day, is such a revered figure. He, um, His tomb is in the center of uh, a chapel at Les Invalides, super famous place in France. And But now, now that he... Um, now that Black Lives Matter has become this global movement, and of course Napoleon reinstated slavery in the colonies, now mm -hmm. there's a whole new bunch of things we can criticize Napoleon for. We don't have to oh, yeah. call him short. No, there were there were you know even without the slavery, there's plenty of other things he did that weren't very nice. You know, like generally invading other countries is you know. It's frowned upon, even though everybody else did it. It's uh, you know <laughs> people yeah, didn't like did it. it. Better. Yeah, just because he's good at it <laughs> made him worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like playing, you know, do you ever play the game Civilization? No. Oh, my gosh. See, Sorry. as a historian, I would think <laughs> that we would be on board with this. But I, I'm, so I'm many too busy shooting Nazis in other games. <laughs> okay. See, I can't take the, the fighting on, on Twitter. So, But so many people will declare war on me. And then I'll defeat them. And then they'll call me a warmonger. And I'm yep. like, okay, you're mad at me because I'm better at it than you, not because I'm a bad person. I think that's a pretty good you know, description of most of human history. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, it's the, we all do what I, don't do what I do, do what I say, that sort of thing. <laughs> one myth, I think, that is very important to France and one that is perpetually restated is the idea that France always surrenders. Yeah. You know, it's a, such a silly one because, um, you know, the chap we've just previously discussed surely answers that silly statement. Quite often when people say that, all I say is Napoleon, the end. <laughs> right. Napoleon, Louis Fourteenth, Charlemagne. Yeah. Philip Augustus, although I'm not sure how yeah. many people know Philip no, Augustus. Most people know Napoleon, but that's where it ends. <laughs> yeah, you know, not to repeat memes, but it's interesting looking at just the military history of different countries. Some people have argued that France has one of, if not the most successful military history, winning the most battles or wars. I mean, I'm not going to argue that point. But what's interesting is that for so long, just for centuries, France fought against most of the rest of Europe and usually came out usually pretty far ahead, mm -hmm. just in, in part because France was such a large population. Um, according to at least one um, demographer, France at one point had the, or maybe not France, maybe we would call it Francia, 
had the third largest population behind China and India. Mm -hmm. So either because of just their sheer population or because maybe they got a great general, France has had a truly remarkable series of victories over many other countries, most often in Europe, but even against countries across the world. So this idea that France surrenders has never really been true. No, it's, it, it is quite strange. Uh, but I found that almost everyone who makes a statement about any country or any group of people that starts with, um, they always lose this or that, or they're really bad at this or that. The second you start looking at their history, you start realizing that either it's not that simple or it's wrong. I mean, my country, the Netherlands, when the Germans invaded, we lasted five days. Now, Some people say that doesn't, you know, that's really bad. But because we were a really small country, uh, somehow people are fine with that. You know, oh, they were, they were so such a small country. They probably, they didn't stand the chance and they expected more of France. So but the more you look at it and if you look at the whole picture and at the technicalities and why it happened so quickly, you realize that it has nothing to do with the character of the people or, you know, with, with, somehow the tradition or the culture the, the French didn't lose from the Germans in 1940 because they were French <laughs> you know if it, it's 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 a silly statement to make to begin with so I put a lot of thought into this because I really wanted to get at the heart of why so many people particularly in the Anglosphere think that France always surrenders? Is it just because of the memes? Is it just because of the Simpsons calling them cheese-eating surrender monkeys? And I think that the reason why France is depicted as always surrendering, because this essentially stems from World War II, is because it's a way of scapegoating them for the failures that they had in World War II. Because If you think about it, I mean, obviously you have the the allies, the Soviet Union, who ended up winning in World War II. And if you look at the the small picture, then they come out looking as heroes. You know, obviously you have the the D Day landings and saving Private Ryan and all that heroism and stuff. Yes, the French French resistance somehow is always overlooked. Everyone everyone forgets how important it was that the the French resistance uh, stopped literally stopped tanks and reinforcements from arriving uh, at the beaches. Absolutely, but even <laughs> even beyond that, if you if you look at World War II just in the case of the war, then you would think that the United States, the Soviet Union, and Britain were these heroic figures, and obviously the the actual people who fought were heroic figures. But if you look at World War II as a much longer event, if you look at it as a prolonged conflict over what Europe would be, essentially starting from, you know, the just after World War One up until 1945, what you'd realize is that France was the one great power that was actually trying to stop German aggression and everyone else was just letting it happen because mm -hmm. on the one hand, so uh, in the one case, Britain had this idea of the balance of power in Europe. That has pretty much been its overriding diplomatic concern going back to the Seven yeah, Years which, War. Which is technically a good idea. 
as long as you stick to it. <laughs> if it works, it's great. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're halfway through, you go, oh, you know, let's let's let let that slip. What they're doing right there, <laughs> that's okay. That's when it goes wrong. Yeah, essentially, Britain has wanted to keep a lid on Europe, so that way it can expand across the world and have a global empire. And in the case of the interwar period. Britain, it didn't want a, a conflict. And so rather than actually engaging with the Germans or drawing a red line in mm -hmm. the sand, they yeah. engaged in constant appeasement of which, 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 again, if it had worked, would have been brilliant. If we would look back at that era and say, um, thank you know, the British allowed things to happen and that's why the Nazis suddenly stopped, started behaving, then it would have been brilliant. But, you know, that's not how it went. Some, I, I'm pretty sure that in some cases throughout history, letting people go a little bit silly and, you know, go over the top or do something they're not supposed to instead of, you know, starting another war over it was perhaps the, good, the, the wise decision, just not in this case. Yeah, in this case, literally the opposite happened because they yeah. sacrificed the Sudetenland, they sacrificed Austria, and they allowed the Nazis to rebuild. And so this policy of Britain's proved to be absolutely disastrous. And even as the French were mm -hmm. saying, we can't allow this, we need to have a hard stance against Germany, Britain was essentially siding with Germany very often. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, you have Britain who pursued this policy of appeasement, which really empowered Nazi Germany. On the other hand, there's the Soviet Union. And if we think about what was going on with the Soviet Union, well, the Soviet Union was isolated after World War One. The Western powers viewed it as a threat because it had undergone this communist revolution. And so what did the Soviet Union do? Well, they looked at Germany, which was also isolated because everybody was blaming Germany for World War One. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, well, here's this opportunity. And so during um, the 1920s, in fact, in 1922, the two signed a treaty of friendship and German officers and technicians made this deal with Russia that they would go to Russia and they would improve their technology. Well, in exchange, the Russians would make weapons to rebuild the German army. And so the Soviet Union really helped remake the German army, eventually what became the Nazi army. And then, of course, in uh, at the start of World War II, they, they signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which divided up Poland. Mm -hmm. And so the Soviet Union helped to really make and rearm Nazi Germany and even sided with them at the beginning of the war. Now, you wouldn't know that from what's going on nowadays. I don't know if you've been fighting with uh, the Russian ultranationalists on Twitter, but even the uh, Russian foreign ministry has been promoting this oh, propaganda yeah. that, oh, the Soviet Union, they never had anything to do with Nazi Germany. And when they invaded Poland, they did it to prevent the Nazis from taking over all of Poland, which is a complete lie. Yeah, but... it, it is. It is insane. Um, I've I have been correcting the Russian embassy a, a couple of times. I don't don't remember if it was on my official account or on my uh, my private private account or this one or I don't remember, but they've been posting a few things that are again provably wrong and and, and quite idiotic. Um, 
which you know it gets very close to flat earth sort of thing and uh not foil hats uh, when there are when when they are claiming something didn't happen when we have pictures and archives and records and things like that um the only way they can continue that story is by saying it's all been faked in a mass global conspiracy <laughs> it's it's ridiculous but you know uh, their own their own people like it it's just what they want to hear um so they 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 buy it. It's it's insane. And of course, nobody wants to be held responsible for helping to make the Nazi war machine. But at least uh, at least in the early 1920s, they really were. And then, which speaking of other powers that were somewhat involved in that, the United States, because the United States was. Uh, in fact, to this day, the major, the uh, not the majority, but the largest single ethnic group in the United States is German. Something like thirty percent of people in the United States mm-hmm. trace their ancestry to Germ uh, to Germany. Yeah, like your president. Lo- yeah, well, well, there we go. And we, you know, it's in America. Any conversation is just a countdown to Trump. But um, but yeah, and so many. Yeah, many people were sympathetic to Germany, uh, maybe not the Nazis in particular, although even even then there were some people who were sympathetic to them. Mm-hmm. And there were policy policymakers in Washington who supported Hitler, essentially because they believed that if Hitler didn't come to power, then the communists would. Yeah. And that's, you know, yeah, and that's what the Germans thought as well. That's one of the main reasons uh, Hitler even got any power, because he used the uh, relatively irrational fear of communism um, to scare people into voting for him. Um, you know, even though there were there had been riots and revolution attempts in Germany, they were all pretty futile and not really going anywhere. And the communists, as they often do, were mostly busy fighting themselves and the right. socialists. <laughs> Which uh, is, you know, it's perfect for the Nazis. It's just what they needed. And, you know, just in case nobody was, wasn't, people were still having doubts, um, a Dutch communist set fire to the Reichstag, which was also brilliant for the Nazis. Thank you very much, Mr. van der Lubbe. So I think, as with everything in history, um, you can blame the Dutch. <laughs> that or the Swiss. But um, No, no, it's always us. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting because, you know, especially in the United States. And if you look at any, any video game, Call of Duty or whatever, mm-hmm. if you look at the movies like Saving Private Ryan, we're always yeah. depicted as these courageous heroes that defeated the Nazis. And, you know, well done to those soldiers who did end up showing up in World War II. Of course, they had a huge impact on defeating the Nazis. I'm not taking that away from yep, them. Absolutely. But in the case of the policymakers during the 1920s and 1930s, they largely supported anyone who would fight the communists. And then not only that, but the United States placed an emphasis on getting their um, war payments back, which put Britain and, well, particularly Britain in a bind because they had to squeeze Germany in order to get money to pay the U.S. So the U.S. put getting their money back over essentially establishing peace in Europe. And so getting back to this whole myth of France always surrendering, I can't help but think that this is just the the Anglosphere and then nowadays, especially uh, Putin's Russia, who are trying to use France as a scapegoat because in World War II, obviously they did a great job of defeating the Nazis, but everything before that, 
they were all complicit in the buildup of Nazi Germany. Britain appeased them, the Soviet Union armed them, and then the U.S. Everybody, everybody was selling to them. Yeah, the U.S. was uh, supporting them and essentially saying, you know, don't try to stop them. We need their their money. Yeah, and when you know countries started to realize where this was going, that it was actually a serious threat, then it was too late. Yeah, exactly. And France was the only major power that was actually trying to stop them. And so, but I, but I, I, I do think that when it comes to the British, um, this attitude goes back a lot further. I think this sort of love hate relationship between the British and the French goes back literally centuries. You know, to Agincourt, for instance. Um, there have been so many wars between the British and the French uh, that that them teasing each other with ideas, stories about surrendering and victories and defeats. I, I think it's you know it, it's almost like a, a, a big brother little brother uh, relationship by now. It, I think it, I think it's more than based on actual history. It's uh, yeah, it's 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 become something that's in DNA. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. But I just wanted to make that point, and not mm-hmm. to rub the English too hard. But you know, <laughs> they uh, England is a product of Normandy, so there you go. So take that English. There you go. That explains it. <laughs> right, exactly. So any greatness you have, no. I'm... If you go back far enough, we're all French. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there is one more major myth that I wanted to talk about, and this is probably the most controversial myth on my page because there are a lot of French people who follow my page, obviously, and they get extremely offended when Uh-oh. whenever I bring this up. The myth is that Vichy wasn't France. Oh, oh dear. And this is such a popular myth and it's been a myth ever since ever since world war ii ended this idea that vichy the government that took over after the nazis invaded the north of france that this government had nothing to do with the real france and everyone was part of the resistance and Mm -hmm. it was only a handful of people who were involved in the government itself and it's obvious why people want to believe this because if the French people essentially had nothing to do during Vichy, if they all went on vacation until, you know, it was time to form the resistance, Mm -hmm. then they wouldn't have anything to do with the Holocaust. Yeah. And this was a myth that dominated France for a very long time up until the American historian of France, Robert Paxton came along and demolished his myth with his book, uh, Vichy France, Old Guard and New Order Mm -hmm. in uh, 1972, in which he demonstrated that much of the fascist and anti-Semitic actions were prompted by French people, not Germany. And in fact, at times, the French government even went beyond what the Germans were asking of them. Not only that, but most French didn't resist Vichy, at least not until the end when it was falling apart. And that there wasn't any serious resistance movement until 1941, uh, when the Germans invaded Russia. And many people realized that, well, the Nazis are going to be defeated anyway. We might as well be on the right side. Which, which makes sense. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not, it's not, an, it's not a cowardice or silliness to say, um, 
this empire that has invaded us is clearly going to rule for a thousand years. Uh, perhaps I should not join the resistance. <laughs> you know, if right. if resistance is, as the young kids say, futile, not resisting is is technically the wise choice. I mean, they say it about my country as well that the resistance uh, was a bit slow to get started. Um, but then people back then also said you're stupid to join the resistance when there's no idea, there's no sign, um, you know, of it ever ending. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to blame people for not joining the resistance at any time of the war. It's, it's bloody dangerous and scary. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And I'm not blaming uh, people for not joining the resistance to start with. And I'm, you know, I think what we need to keep in mind is that most people throughout history to this day are just average people. They're not good. They're not... Life continued. But there's also this very strange, um, this strange sort of um, grading of resistance. You know, what is good resistance? What is bad resistance? What is valuable resistance? Because so many people joined resistance from day one, but it wasn't shooting. It wasn't fighting. It wasn't blowing off stuff. It was the underground newspapers. It was telling Germans uh, the wrong directions. It was um, cutting a telephone wire when nobody was watching. It was police officers telling, uh, you know, giving an anonymous tip to people who were hiding somewhere. And Quite often when you're talking about resistance and you say, um, you know, this is also resistance, then people say, yeah, but that doesn't count. You know, it's almost as if only those who actually did fighting and shooting counted. While at the time people were going, these people uh, are mad. They're shooting at the Germans and the Germans then, you know, have these reprisals killing people for it. Um, Support for the armed resistance was very, very low for most of the war while support for the small resistance, as they call it, uh, was very, very high. And that somehow has completely turned around, which is a bit odd, but at the same time, quite understandable. (laughs) Yeah, no, it is a very strange thing. And it's, um, speaking about the Holocaust, it's something that Holocaust survivors deal with too, because there are some Holocaust survivors, I mean, not many left, unfortunately, because a lot of them are dying out. But I've met Holocaust survivors uh, who survived Auschwitz and who were actually in the concentration camps. And then there are Jews who they hid in an attic in Poland for four years. And there are those who go to the concentration camps and say, well, you know, you weren't a real survivor compared to me because what I went through was much worse. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is really, really uh, strange and, and and a bit sad, but they do compare. There's, there's even comparisons be, between camps. You know, you were in a work camp. I survived a death camp. My suffering is is more important than yours. Um, you know, while I've spoken to people who went into hiding, who are furious with those who didn't go into hiding. You know, they said we we risked our lives uh, to not cooperate with the german holocaust we fought back we resisted we were we were hiding uh, while everyone around us walked straight to their deaths so it is it is you know it's a really complicated stuff and i've i've spoken also to people who tried to hide uh, jews and other you know it wasn't just jews who were of course who were persecuted by the nazis and I've had an elderly lady look at me and tell me with tears in her eyes that she was literally walking around the Jewish neighborhood, uh, risking her life, trying to get strangers to go and hide and offering them a hiding place in her house. 
Well, they didn't want to. They didn't dare. They didn't. They they thought it wasn't necessary. All those sort of things. And this old lady then had to live through the 1970s and 80s when people were saying, uh, you know, your generation did nothing to help the Jews. It was, you know, it, it is such a complicated story, and it's, it, you know, there's there's no winners in it, but. Almost every little bit of history, uh, the second you start looking at both sides, or often there's more than two sides, if you start looking at all the sides of a story and at the actual facts and records, and then it becomes so complex and so not black and white and so weird that it's, uh, judging it becomes almost impossible, judging the actions of the people involved. Absolutely, and I think this is why the myth that Vichy isn't France has been such a powerful part of the French identity. And I'm sure that, I mean, obviously there are parallels with the Netherlands, Poland, with every country during World War II, because they don't want to share responsibility for this shame. And it's why, so to this day, the the majority of opinion, so the overwhelming opinion of historians of France in English and of French historians in general is that even though most French people were not collaborators or resistors, the fact is, is that France did have some part to play in it. I mean, it was French police who rounded up Jews. It was French officials who came up with these plans. It was uh, Philippe Pétain who actually would purposefully make conditions harder for Jews. And there have recently been unsealed documents from 2010 that he went way out of his way to persecute Jews. And not only historians, but French presidents, uh, Francois Mitterrand, Francois Hollande, and Emmanuel Macron, all publicly admitted that France itself has some guilt to play in the Holocaust. But, But to this day, there is a very pronounced uh, Holocaust denial from the far right. For those who aren't, who aren't quite familiar with what's going on there. So uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who founded the largest far right party, uh, Le Grand National, uh, has praised Holocaust deniers and he implied the gas chambers didn't exist. Meanwhile, his uh, daughter, Marine Le Pen, Uh, kicked her father out of the party because of these comments, but not because she necessarily disagreed, but just because she was trying to rebrand the FN. Yeah, that's that's as much as I hate to say it, that's quite smart. The the second they start embracing, uh, you know, history as we all agree on it, as the second that the extreme right starts to say things like the Holocaust did happen and it's terrible, but, no, that's when they become... that's become them when they become a bit more serious of a threat. As long as they keep saying ridiculous things that anyone with a bit of education uh, knows to be wrong. Yeah, and in her case, in Le Pen's case, in the Le Pen, the daughter, in her case, she's admitted that the Holocaust did happen, but she said that Vichy was not France. Again, this myth, and she said that French people bore no responsibility. And then I have to bring up one more mm-hmm. example because he's become somewhat of a nemesis of mine, even though we've never directly engaged, but I have had to deal with his uh, goons, which is uh, Eric Zemmour, 
do you know who this person is? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Not, I think not a lot of people in the English world know, but perhaps you're closer to him. So it's amazing because Zemmour to give sort of a comparison for those of us in particularly in America, he's kind of like the French amalgamation of Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens and he manages to get away with an incredible amount of racism because he's ethnically an Algerian Jew. And so he can mm-hmm. say these horrendously racist things, and yet he gets away with it because he himself is the two, arguably the two most persecuted minorities in France, I suppose, putting aside black people. Yeah. And so he's part of uh, Le Figaro magazine, which has a number of open white nationalists on its editorial board. And he continually spreads these lies about France's relation to the Holocaust. In 2014, he claimed that uh, Philippe Petain protected Jews against Nazi Germany, which is a complete lie because, in fact, he did the exact opposite. Um, And in fact, he pursued anti-Jewish measures in 1940 without even being prompted by the Germans. And I'm going to include links when I uh, post this episode so you can look at it yourself and you can look at the documents. And so what's been incredible is that, so what's incredible is that while many people on the French far right don't deny the Holocaust happened, they claim that only a small minority of Vichy collaborators did it. And then they claim that they only did it because the Germans forced them, which both of those are absolutely not true. Which is also something the Germans themselves used for quite a long time. (laughs) We're being forced. If we didn't do it, we'd be shot. And then you start looking for examples and they're very, very rare. Yeah. And so essentially in wrapping up this episode, I did want to talk about why countering these myths is -hmm. important and why historical truth is important. And perhaps I can start by just wrapping up the whole Vichy thing, because the fact that France really didn't have a denazification period, the fact that they blamed everything on Germany, that led to a lot of pain later because a fair number of people who sided with the Nazis got to stay in government, the most famous of which was Maurice Papon. Maurice Papon, who during World War II, he led a roundup of Jews at Bordeaux to send them off for deportation to be exterminated. And then, of course, what happened was as as it looked like Nazi Germany was going to be defeated, Papon later claimed that, oh, I was part of the resistance from the very beginning. And so he became an important figure. He ended up becoming the head of the Paris police force for for a decade. And he ended up teaching the Paris police how to murder Algerian immigrants and then dispose of the bodies without being caught. And then, of course, he was later put on trial in 1981, not for anything he did against the Algerians, but because people found out about his involvement of rounding up Jews. So the fact is, is that the French far right keeps denying this, but this matters. It especially matters because a lot of these fascists managed to stay in power and impart some of their hideous ideology into France. Yeah, people use, you know, fake history is not just saying, oh, you're wrong. 
um, but it's people actually trying to say something with the fake history they're spreading. They're not, sh- they're not always uh, showing a picture and saying, look, this is a funny picture, this is the story. They're sharing these stories uh, because they have an ulterior agenda. They have, want to say something with them. And that's when it gets dangerous. It literally can get dangerous when people use it and politicians start using it and um, you know, it starts spreading like a wildfire. So I've already spoken now just how, why I think historical truth is important. But let me throw it to you, which is why is historical truth important? Why do you do what you do every morning? Well, it, 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 really, it, it sort of depends on the story. In some cases, it's not that important. I mean, if someone says, look, this is a picture of um, Marilyn Monroe, and you say it's not Marilyn Monroe, it's this other actress from the 1950s, uh, that's, you know, that is not a world-shattering sort of fake bit of fake history that's being spread. Um, but when someone says, here's a, a rare picture of Marilyn Monroe reading, they're suggesting that she was dumb, which she was not. So it, it, it really depends on the story. And uh, especially these days, when people start spreading uh, fake history news, for instance, stories about, um, you know, medieval Europeans being all dirty and filthy. And that's because, you know, that's where the, the Black Death came from. And, uh, you know, and you just know it's wrong. And they're, they're sharing it for political reasons, sometimes for racist reasons. And it's it's all these things when people who are important uh, start spreading fake things. Uh, sometimes you know that they do it because they want to, you know, for because they want to be really mean about other people, but sometimes it's from a place of ignorance, and you know that they should be sharing something that's more important. For instance, a while back, Ice Cube, that that, that really is his name, apparently, um, shared a picture and said, "This is the oldest image of Jesus Christ." Uh, in that picture, Jesus clearly had a very dark skin, and he, I think, he has about five million followers. And to a lot of people, this meant a lot. There are a lot of people who really, really desperately want to believe that Jesus was black, not just dark, but actually black. And you know, they put a lot of value into that tweet. And someone with 5 million followers for someone like that, it's important. And there's absolutely a lot to be said for uh, you know, saying that Jesus had a dark skin and all that sort of thing. But the picture that he used to make this statement it was simply was, was wrong. It was nowhere near one of the first examples. Um and when when you know when the right wingers start saying things about uh, you know there being no culture in Africa before colonialism, oh that that's just revoltingly disgusting and absolutely again for political reasons they actually want people to believe that to make a, another group of people appear less, and it's often that fake history gets under my skin when it's used to make other cultures uh, you know somehow barbaric or savages. And it doesn't matter if this is, uh, you know, Europeans talking about uh, African uh, tribes that were colonized and that, you know, how great it was that the Europeans brought civilization to these people. Or if it's the other way around, when people say that the Moors brought civilization to medieval Europe, um, the whole idea of people um, being so backwards and stupid and not being able to help themselves to someone superior comes along and, you know, teaches them this. Um, I find that pretty revolting, and it, it, you know, it, it is something that is being spread for malicious reasons. So it has to be fought, and I think that's why it's important. Uh, you know, besides the whole idea of me just being obsessed with facts <laughs> and getting itchy hands when I see someone say something that's not right. 
Absolutely. So how do you think the internet has changed people's perceptions of history? Well, I think um, that it offers us a, a unique access to people with knowledge. I mean, I've I've found amazing medievalists, uh, archaeologists, architects, um, artists, uh, musicians, people of all walks of life that are on Twitter sharing their knowledge for free. <laughs> and it has to be short. It has to be to the point. Uh, that, of course, there are some amazing threats here and there. But these people share it, and it's not like uh, an article in a in a publication, uh, in a book. It's you know, it's it's the 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 threshold to access this knowledge is very low, and anyone from anywhere can ask these people questions. Um, you know, I can share something on Twitter, and lots of people read it, which is fantastic. And historians, other historians, um, you know, share what they find. The archaeologists post a little thing that they find that changes everything we know. They put a picture on Twitter and it goes around the world. Um, and on top of that, it puts people together from other sides of the world who have been taught history in a completely different way. Um, I think some of the most valuable moments I've spent on Twitter was um, it's discussing, having discussions about history um, with people from South America or from uh, South Africa who have a completely different view. Uh, and, you know, we start with disagreeing and then we start comparing and sharing facts. And then we, uh, and then, then I learn from them and they learn from me. And we end at this beautiful, blissful paradise place where we both have new knowledge, which is, you know, that, that is one of the best things about Twitter. Um, it really opens the world and because we're all strangers shouting into the darkness <laughs> if you will um we all you know everyone can reach it if you post this on facebook you reach a much smaller circle you, you know you're in your bubble to use a horrible modern term if you um publish it in a historical publication it can take decades before it reaches the public but uh, yeah, Twitter is is open. It's so open. Anything you say, anyone in the world can respond to, and I, th I think that's fantastic. So one final question then: How can we counter historical myths? Um, I yes, maybe I'm still a bit naive, but I think the best way to do it is simply by throwing facts at them. You know, if someone says uh, people in medieval Europe didn't have any soap and I can show them records that says there was a soap factory in Italy in the 13th century, then I, I, I hope that that is enough for them to at least realize that their idea needs a bit of adjustment. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. People sometimes... You know, sometimes you can have facts march up to their house, kick in their door, uh, jump in their bed and shout in their face, I am a fact, and they would still not believe it. So that's, you know, sometimes that is difficult. And I find that really hard to deal with because that's, you know, that's not how I was raised. I was raised with logic and, you know, asking teachers uh, difficult questions and demanding that they prove what they say. That you know, that was my school. That was my how my parents taught me. You know, don't blindly believe what people tell you, uh, and but if they can prove it, accept it because that's you know that that's how it goes. 
so that's that's what I think uh, we should try and do. Just keep throwing facts at them and hope that one day this idea of using facts uh, may even reach uh, school classes <laughs> and, you know, education in general. And even Ice Cube. Even Ice Cube. Thank you very much for that inspiring message. It has been a fantastic episode. Thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. And thank you for inviting me. Au revoir. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.